This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 17, Episode 12, Rishi Sunak, Britain's new Prime Minister, talking with Jonathan Hopkin of the London School of Economics. Rishi Sunak, age 42, was asked by King Charles to form a new government on October 25th. The youngest Prime Minister in 200 years, he's the UK's first Prime Minister of Asian descent. The third Prime Minister in three months, after Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, he comes to power amidst financial turmoil. With us today to discuss Rishi Sunak's rapid rise to the top is Professor Jonathan Hopkin, who joins us from his office in London. Hi, Jonathan, and welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. Jonathan, can you share your biography with us, please? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, I teach comparative politics at the London School of Economics. I've been there for the last 18 years. My background is I started off studying European languages and moved on to European politics. And uh, I've, uh, I've taught in universities in the UK and Italy and Spain and in the US on the subject of European politics and British politics with a particular interest in party politics on the one hand and the political economy on the other. So I'm interested in the ways in which economic policies relate to democratic politics, elections, political parties, and how it all all kind of fits together. So that's, that's, um, that's my main interest. And I've, I've particularly been working recently on the sort of politics of disruption over the last decade or so. And I wrote a book called Anti-System Politics with Oxford University Press, came out uh, two years ago, looking at political instability in Britain, the United States, and, and Europe. Very impressive background. And Jonathan, who is Rishi Sunak? Interesting character in British politics for all kinds of reasons. So obviously the first prime minister of ethnic back- minority background. So he's, uh, his parents uh, were of Indian descent, although through coming through Africa. So um, Rishi's family is part of this community of, of a diaspora, an Indian diaspora, if you like, Indians who went to um, to work in other British colonies in Africa and ended up very often migrating to the UK in the 60s and 70s, especially when it became quite unsafe for them in in some of these uh, newly decolonized African states, such as uh, Kenya and Uganda and others. And in fact, Rishi Sunak is alongside Priti Patel and Suela Braverman are are, are all representatives of, of, of that background who've come to prominence very, very recently in the British Conservative Party. So that in itself is is quite remarkable and, and interesting aspect of, of his background. But I think also what, what he represents is he comes from a, a new young generation of Conservatives. He, unlike many of his colleagues, was uh, in favour of Brexit, in favour of leaving the European Union from the very beginning. So he, he campaigned already for, for Brexit in the 2016 uh, referendum. And also he stands out, I think, as having this particular background in, uh, in finance and uh, having worked for, for Goldman Sachs, having worked in the investment industry, but also having this American connection, in particular Californian connection mm-hmm. with MBA at Stanford and working in, in finance and investment uh, in, in 
California. So, so in in all these respects, Sunak kind of stands out as being quite quite a unique figure in the Conservative Party. Let's step back for a minute and look at the UK's political landscape over the last three months. Boris Johnson announced his resignation on July seventh, in part prompted by Rishi Sunak's resignation as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Tell us about what happened to Boris and the race to succeed him. I guess there's a kind of internal story, which I don't really know, is not a member of the Conservative Party or involved in, in the shenanigans, really, of what's going on in the leadership of the Conservative Party. And then there's a story that we've been able to observe fr- from outside. And uh, it's still a bit unclear, really, how it happened that Boris Johnson ended up being unseated, because he won the election in 2019 with a very, very significant advantage and a big majority in the parliament, which normally would place a prime minister in, in a position to be able to govern unmolested, uh, really, for, for five years. And the fact that, uh, obviously, he was derailed by, by COVID, which uh, the pandemic began only a few months after that election victory. And in fact, it's Johnson's behavior during the pandemic, which was the pretext for levering, levering him out of office um, just before the summer. So the, the pretext, the justification for removing him was that he had violated some of the protocols and rules that his own government had established for, for the pandemic to do with social distancing, to do with not uh, being able to take part in in social events and having uh, when it became revealed that that Johnson's administration had actually presided over lots of parties and social events which were strictly prohibited at that time for everyone else this caused a great upset in the country and severely undermined his position but one of the interesting things about this is that of course much of this information was known to several people inside the government and inside the Conservative Party for quite some time before the scandal came out. And one of these people was Rishi Sunak. In fact, one of the photographs which revealed a social event in Downing Street in the garden of number 10, which is the seat of the British Prime Minister, one of these photographs was taken from the house next door, which is the seat of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is uh, where Rishi Sunak uh, was living at the time as the Chancellor, the head of of the Finance Ministry in, in the UK. So there was some suspicion that Part of what was going on was an attempt by Sunak and his followers to to push Johnson out and, and to attempt to take over uh, directly from him. Either way, uh, Johnson saw his popularity very, very quickly withering when these revelations emerged and, and was losing support both in the country, but also in the media, and most importantly, within his own parliamentary party. And given that Britain does not have a presidential system, but a parliamentary one, a prime minister can only survive if he or she has the full support of the MPs, the members of parliament for their own party. And, and at, uh, in the springtime, it started to become apparent that Johnson no longer had that support and, and his, his end was, was inevitable. And then, of course, there was a six-week Conservative Party, internal Conservative Party race to replace him. And uh, the two top vote winners were Liz Truss and uh, Rishi Sunak. Tell us a little bit about that race and how Liz emerged at first and then she was ousted and then Rishi Sunak got the job. It sounds a little bit complicated. Fairly unique in in recent British history to have this kind of turnover in the top job. We it really really doesn't happen very often. It's uh, very very common in the UK for a prime minister to get at least a, a full parliamentary term, uh, a full four or five years. 
at the job, although actually it happens more frequently than than many think that, that we have changes of the prime minister during a parliament, so between elections. And that was uh, what happened to uh, Boris Johnson. He came to office during previous legislature when uh, uh, Theresa May resigned. And of course, he himself has been removed during a legislature, the, the subsequent one, despite having led the party to really dramatic uh, victory in the 2019 election. So when Johnson's uh, game was up, if you like, when he lost support in the party, there had to be a leadership election because there was no strong consensus within the, the, the Conservative Party and especially within the parliamentary party about who should take over. And there's a lot of division between supporters of Rishi Sunak, people who were opposed to Sunak because of his perceived involvement in overturning Johnson, so fans of Johnson, but also people who's, who were supporting other candidates. And in fact, the, the field was very crowded in the beginning with, I believe, nine candidates, nine or ten candidates in mm-hmm. the beginning. And there was a very complicated voting system through which the members of parliament uh, whittled down that field to the final two, which are then voted on. There is a there is a vote of the Conservative Party members in the country between these two choices that have been um, selected by the parliament by the parliamentarians. And this is what sparked off this six week campaign, which was very controversial because many people thought that in a moment of crisis, with the Ukraine war, with the energy crisis looming, with the financial crisis looming high inflation and all kinds of problems that it was inappropriate for there to be this hiatus, this vacuum of power for such a long time, especially since uh, the conversation going on between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak was a conversation entirely internal to the Conservative Party and only directed at the rather small number of Conservative Party members in the country. It was seen from the beginning as almost inevitable that Liz Truss would win, that she appealed more to the kind of gut, to the sort of gut feelings of Conservative Party members, that she was a a Eurosceptic, she was quite right-wing on kind of social issues, uh, and also very clearly had these quite strong uh, pro-market beliefs in economic mm-hmm. policy, whereas Sunak came across as being more of a technocratic kind of figure, uh, less of a populist, less obviously attractive for the sort of more reactionary right-wing authoritarian parts of the Conservative Party, and, and so Trust was expected to win, and, and she did by a substantial margin. But of course, as we've seen, um, she didn't last very long in Downing Street. Um, and this is perhaps the most you know, dramatic and spectacular failure of a prime minister in the entire history of, of British democracy. It really, it's never happened before that somebody has lost their authority as prime minister quite so quickly. And during that six-week internal primary, if you will, in the Conservative Party between pitting Truss against Sunak, Sunak really came out swinging against Liz Truss's trickle-down economics, her economic policies, etc. So it, it was no surprise what her position was and what his position was on the economy. And uh, it was kind of reminiscent a little bit of uh, George Bush and Ronald Reagan when they were running for the for the Republican nomination in 1980. Ronald Reagan, of course, was espousing market economics. George Bush was more traditional technocratic. Ronald Reagan, of course, was on the supply side, and George Bush called it voodoo economics. And it didn't uh, didn't Sunak also refer to Liz Truss's economics as fairy tale economics or something uh, something along those lines? 
Yeah, that's right. And I like the parallel that that works. I think that I think with although Liz Truss entirely lacked Ronald Reagan's charisma, but certainly in terms of what she stood for, it was rather similar. There was this kind of belief that in in the the so-called Laffer curve, yes. that the, the, that uh, Ronald Reagan and his followers also have have often talked about this notion that you can actually raise more taxes by cutting tax rates, which under certain conditions might be true, but is generally not taken seriously by economists, and there's no evidence that it ever really works. And similarly, trickle-down economics, which in the 1980s sounded like a plausible idea, or at the very least, it was not obviously untrue. And of course, 30, 40 years later, we can see quite clearly that the wealth did not trickle down, really, that that, um, these kind of policies in in the UK and the US have both led to the same result, which is increased inequality and and, uh, huge concentration of wealth at, at the very top. So in many respects, there was that kind of contrast. But I think Sunak is also economically quite clearly very much a conservative. But the the difference between them is that uh, Sunak took quite seriously the idea that Britain had to work very hard to transmit an image of financial stability, um, that the government shouldn't take any risks with Britain's reputation as a as a sort of credit worthy nation, whereas Liz Truss had, I'm not really quite sure why, because it seemed quite predictable. And Sunak indeed did predict exactly what happened when she came to power and offered immediately very large unfunded tax cuts alongside an extremely expensive program of support for energy bills. Sunak did actually, was actually seen on occasion to be making the very point that these policies would likely cause upset in the financial markets and increase in interest rates and ultimately an unstable financial situation, which is exactly what happened within just a few weeks of trust taking office. So obviously that placed Sunak in an extremely strong position when it became evident to the Conservative Party that trust could not last, could not survive in office, and that the man who had actually called out the silliness of her actions would be the obvious person to replace her. Well, now that Rishi's in power, what is his plan for government? Well, we don't really know yet. <laughs> We've had, I mean, at the moment, um, the, the government is, they're in lockdown, if you like, planning how they're going to respond to all the challenges that, that, that face us, which are indeed very serious. Uh, so we don't exactly know the specific policies. What we do know is that Sunak is very much opposed to the notion that that we can cut taxes and hope that uh, that uh, economic growth will 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 take the strain. He's not taking that idea seriously at all, and instead has made it quite clear that the aim of government is to secure financial stability and to ensure that markets believe that uh, the British government is going to run a balanced budget or as close as possible to a balanced budget in a situation of of recession that we're now facing. And that hard decisions have to be taken. So this is very much the mood music of the Sunak administration is that, you know, we're going to have to take tough decisions, I think is the language being used. And of course, tough decisions means unpopular decisions. It means decisions such as probably raising taxes, not only for higher income groups, but also for the middle, um, and also probably uh, restraining rises in public spending or even cutting 
some aspects of public spending, which, of course, is also inevitably going to be very, very unpopular. And the aim of this is is twofold, really. It's on the one hand, quite practically, to close some of the uh, fiscal gap between tax revenue and spending, since um, the, the deficit has been rising, both as a result of emergency measures under COVID, which Sunak as Chancellor was responsible for, a big expansion of government spending to pay for people to be uh, to stay at home during lockdown, but also the changing economic situation, which has meant rising inflation causing increased uh, government spending. So things like having to pay for the heating bills for government offices, schools and hospitals and so on is obviously going to cost the country more. Also, it's very likely that people wages are not going to rise on the whole to keep up with inflation. But at the same time, it's expected that uh, to close the deficit, we're going to have to raise taxes. So all of that is designed to limit the amount the government has to borrow in a situation when interest rates are rising, which will make borrowing more expensive. But the second plank of this strategy is the hope that by showing willing to take unpopular decisions, the financial markets will cut the government some slack, will take for granted that the government will try to seek a balanced budget and and will therefore reward Britain with lower interest rates on government bonds, which will make, obviously, balancing the books an awful lot easier. So I think that is the, the main economic strategy of the Sunak government. But as I say, with the, the actual details of who's going to end up paying uh, and how much uh, are yet to be revealed. Now, in the book that you referenced, the book that you wrote two years ago, the anti-system book, you referred to the market approach to the economy and the more left-wing approach to the economy, and that uh, you you, re- you referred to democratic capitalism, and you mm-hmm. you, you talked about ninety percent tax rates that existed during the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. Tell us a little bit about the the thesis of that book and the the struggle between democratic capitalism on the one hand and the the pull on the on the left because at this point the labor party seems to be well ahead of the conservatives and of course the conservatives still have another 2 years to run before they have to call an election in December of 2024 so could you share with us Jonathan the the thesis of your book where you know are we in the closing days of this neoliberal economic model that first came in with Thatcher and uh, and Reagan in the 70s and 80s are we looking at the demise of that I've called this before and it's <laughs> it's still not really happened so in a sense I think many features of the kind of Reagan Thatcher settlement um, that emerged in the 70s and 80s are, are still in place. And so I think it's a bit soon to start writing obituaries for, for that model. But what is certainly emerging, I think, and you can see it in the United States, especially with the Biden administration, but also with the Trump administration to some extent. And you can see also with the discourse that Boris Johnson used when he was prime minister. And you can see it also in the European Union with the increasingly fiscally I wouldn't say lax, but fiscally less restrictive approach being taken by by the European authorities. You can see a shift in the political mood when it comes Mm -hmm. to economic policy. And that shift is a recognition, really, that by leaving the economy uh, to the market, what happens is that some people do extremely well. And Rishi Sunak is an example of that, Mm -hmm. somebody who's made a lot of money in in financial markets and benefited from this combination of relatively 
loose regulation of finance, but also very low taxes compared to the past for people with very high incomes. But of course, there's also a downside, which is all, all of these people who, you know, for example, I, I, you know, maybe not the best example, but it just comes to mind that the, um, the man accused of attacking uh, Nancy Pelosi's residence and attacking her husband, I, I was reading lives in a school bus. You know, there, there are many people. And of course, San Francisco and the, the Bay Area has a huge housing problem. Mm-hmm. And um, and all across the United States, there are people who, you know, not only have low incomes, but they don't even have somewhere stable to, to live. Not quite as extreme, but we also get some of that in Britain, too. So so this kind of this high inequality that has been emerging over the last few decades as a result of these kind of Thatcher-Reagan type policies of cutting taxes and reducing the role of the government in securing people's welfare inevitably really has led to extremes of wealth and poverty and i I think after the financial crisis a global financial crisis at the end of the 2000s there's been a whole series of symptoms and signs really of, of, of how our western societies are not really prepared to tolerate that anymore and there are Lots of disparate ways in which society has been um, pushing back. So, mm-hmm. and and you talked about the difference between kind of pro-market type of politics and other approaches. In fact, the interesting thing is, in a way, the sort of dominant liberalism or neoliberalism of the 80s, 90s, and and early 2000s, very much leaving the market to allocate resources as much as, as possible and government getting out of the way. You can critique and impose that vision from from both ends of the political spectrum. And I think we can see that in American politics, because Trump in many ways was not really a neoliberal. He demanded protectionism. He he railed against Wall Street, although didn't really do too much to curb Wall Street, but talked a lot about it. And of course, on the left, Bernie Sanders and other similar movements representing a sort of most socialist critique of, of neoliberalism. So in a way, the sort of liberal consensus the last few decades has been challenged from both sides. And we see that in Britain too. Um, So Boris Johnson challenged it uh, using this famous lewd phrase, um, F (laughs) business, which was something that you would never expect a conservative prime minister to say. He used this in the context of many people in the business community in Britain complaining about the risks to the British economy posed by Brexit. And Boris Johnson's attitude was, well, we need to get it through because the people have voted for it. And I'm not going to listen to businesses' complaints. You can see this pushback against market liberalism coming from many different angles. And and yet, uh, Sunak is probably not a representative of that. In many ways, he's a representative more of continuity. Even though he voted for, for Brexit, he's very much, I think, within the sort of consensus camp. He believes in financial stability. He believes in curbing public spending uh, if, if necessary. He believes in regulating markets, but not too much. So, so I don't think we can really see him as a representative of this anti-system politics that, that I wrote about. Is it inevitable that the conservatives who've been in power now since 2010, so for 12 years, and if they remain in power for another two years, because he Sunak won't have to call an election till December of 2024, they will have been in power for 14 years, rivaling, even surpassing the 1951 to 1964 uh, conservative rule. Do you think it's inevitable that we're in the closing days of, of the, or the closing years, if you will, of the conservative rule in Britain at this point, and that the cycle is going to flip to, to the other party at this point? Is it inevitable or not? 
it looks extremely likely because I think the damage to the Conservatives' reputation caused by the events of the last few months, I think, is 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 severe and perhaps terminal. So, and it's, and especially the events in in September when Listras uh, pushed through this budget, which was roundly condemned um, by by people in the financial markets with very bad consequences for people's mortgage rates and uh, and interest rates. I, that's the kind of once-in-a-generation political failure that really hits home amongst voters. Even people who maybe don't normally pay too much attention to politics look at these uh, kinds of events and think, well, this is a very good reason for, for not voting for for this, this party in government. So I think it's a very uphill battle for Rishi Sunak to, to, to recover the Conservatives' reputation uh, for economic competence after that episode. And, and of course, the, the very tough thing for him is that he's having to, if you like, overcompensate for, for the damage to the reputation caused by, by Listras by imposing really quite austere medicine on the British economy. And this is not going to be popular because let's remember that Britain, although it has substantial gas resources, these are in private hands. And uh, so far, the government's actually ruled out financing the subsidies, the energy subsidies that, that all agree are necessary this, this winter through a windfall tax of energy companies' profits. So the government is going to have to find the resources, and these are, you know, tens tens of billions of, of pounds to prop up people's uh, energy, household energy bills, and of course the industrial energy bills is, uh, too, which are which are just as important. That money has to be either uh, raised in tax or, or borrowed, and the only way to, of, of borrowing it sustainably is convincing financial markets that the government's prepared to impose harsh medicine on British households in order to pay for it. So this is going to involve having to, you know, impose a harsh squeeze on living standards. Uh, just at a time when already living standards are under pressure. And I think it's very hard to see how a government can can get re-elected under those circumstances. The only hope really is that the uh, economy recovers quickly enough in time for this deadline really of the, the end of 2024 when we have to have another general election. I think Initially, I was wondering whether the Conservatives would actually get that far. There was such a level of division and chaos in, in the party that it seemed unlikely that they would be able to sustain the government for two years. Rishi Sunak has certainly steadied the ship and made it much more likely that they can get through that period. And you know, if circumstances change and get easier, which is far from certain, then they perhaps would have a sporting chance of saying, well, we faced these very difficult circumstances, we managed the ship of state competently, and, and here are the results. But I think you would have to be a very optimistic conservative to believe that, and I think the odds are that they will lose the next election. Well, Jonathan, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? And of course, it seems as though Rishi Sunak has his plate more than full at this point, but any closing thoughts for our listeners as we begin the early days of the Rishi Sunak administration? Well, I think one of the interesting things from the point of view of your audience is his California connection and uh, and the fact that he did get into some trouble politically for having holding a green card and there was some suspicion that he was not really sufficiently committed to to british politics and british government to to uh, actually renounce that and focus entirely on, on the uk 
and contributing to the governance of the UK. So I think that that's quite an interesting angle. I mean, in some ways, uh, obviously, he's a very ambitious man, has a lot of opportunities to go out and be successful and make even more money <laughs> working in, in the investment uh, uh, industry. And the fact that he's chosen to actually take on the job of prime minister at the most difficult time, possibly one of the most difficult times to take the job in my lifetime, um, it, uh, say something about him, either a great sense of responsibility or a great sense of ambition to want to have the top job. But either way, it's kind of interesting that he's chosen to take on this poison chalice rather than going and having what would almost certainly be a much easier life making money in, in the US. I expect he will probably end up doing that anyway when his political career comes to a close. Um, but it's kind of interesting that he's he's made that choice. I think the other point sort of following on from that is in many ways, despite the fact that opposition or rejection of globalization has been one of the key features of our politics, I think, over the last few years, Sunak's rise is in some way a celebration of globalization, mm. not only because of his uh, migrant background, but also the fact that he's clearly, he belongs to this global financial and entrepreneurial elite. He has global reach, he has connections, not only obviously through his his parents' background with with, with India, and also potentially with Africa, but also with the United States as well. And so in some ways, the, the, he, he represents this kind of ambitious, entrepreneurial, cosmopolitan generation that has come out of globalization. So it's kind of, you know, coming back to the question you asked me earlier, whether there are signs of the end of, you know, the neoliberal era, in some ways, the uh, success of Rishi Sunak suggests that the neoliberal era or the era of globalization is, is far from closed. Although, of course, events likely, the likely comeback perhaps of, of Trumpism in the United States would, would point in the opposite direction. Well, Jonathan, on that note, it sounds as though it's, uh, it's, it's too early to write the obituary for the end of neoliberalism. And I think you make a very good case for, given the profile of Rishi Sunak, there is a, a new generation out there, a lot of young men and women who share similar backgrounds and profiles professionally to Rishi Sunak. So perhaps neoliberalism will, uh, will live to fight another day. But Jonathan, on that note, I'd like to thank you for having joined us today and being our guest. And how can our listeners follow you? Thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure. I'm um, I'm I'm quite active on social media, so I've uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, if uh, the new ownership doesn't kick me off, uh, on uh, J R Hopkin. Um, so you can find me on Twitter, where I tweet regularly my dismay at some of the <laughs> ways in which Britain, America, and Europe are being run. And otherwise, I, I publish academic work, but I also publish um, some more uh, blog length pieces. I publish sometimes in foreign affairs, for example. So uh, I, I try and sort of spread my ideas in, in, in different ways. Yeah, Google is a good guide to, to finding where I do that. Your Twitter handle is at J.R. Hopkin. That's right. Okay, very good. Once again, our guest today has been Professor Jonathan Hopkin, of the London School of Economics. And again, Jonathan, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 336 as we continue to mark the second anniversary of the San Francisco Experience. With listeners in 65 countries, the San Francisco Experience is featured on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, 
Amazon Music, iHeart, and Odyssey. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.